Welcome to What Are You Sporting About podcast, a podcast about business, employment, sports, and entertainment to help educate, support, and guide you to your next level. Here's your host, attorney Savania DeBarros. Hi there, this is Savania DeBarros, the protector of athletes, and I am back with another episode of What Are You Sporting About? Hey, before we jump in, I want to remind you to make sure you go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and our website at www.prosportlawyer.com and get a copy of our best-selling book, What Are You Sporting About? As I've mentioned so many times before, What Are You Sporting About? The book actually inspired this podcast. So without further ado, I am Savannah Navarro, the protector of athletes a licensed attorney who represents six and seven figure business owners and athletes in business through business representation, employment, sports, and entertainment. I am so excited to have an amazing person with me today, Coach Tiffany Lockett. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Almost definitely. So let me just tell you a little bit about Coach Lockett, because first off, she's a veteran coach. Um, She was a former head coach at Trinity Washington University after serving as an assistant coach at Thomas College in Waterville, Maine. Um, And at that school, she actually helped guide the Terriers to their best record in seven seasons. She has so much experience in the sports industry, and currently she works for Monumental Sports, and that's also based in D.C., and she is the junior NBA coach where she helps facilitate camps, clinics, and other Washington Uh, Wizards and Mystics Youth Basketball Events. She is an active member of the Women's Basketball Coaches Association and a USA Basketball Gold Certified Coach. That was a lot. And it's still more about who you are. (laughs) But welcome to the show again. Is there anything else that you would like to say to introduce yourself and your credentials to our audience? Uh, well, the only thing I'd like to add is um, I, I've done a million and one things in my short 49-year life, <laughs> um, but the fire department, um, I think, was the most challenging uh, and one of the jobs that taught me the most about myself. Wow. Okay. Let's unpack that because <laughs> that is so yes. Let's unpack that. So as a woman um, in a predominantly male industry yes how did you first off how did you even how did you come to uh the firefighter industry like what what guided you there why did you want to be a firefighter in the first place and then once you were there um did you experience any of the adversities as it relates to gender bias absolutely uh well actually i when i lived in cleveland um i was going through a um African-American program that they had. And I was one of the top candidates. And on a fluke, um, I didn't, I lost a lot of time on my physical portion. Um, Mm -hmm. And there were, it was down to the last three women. And their, um, their exams, their written exams were better than mine. So Mm -hmm. I had ended up losing so much time on my physical that it kicked me out of the process. And the other two women were the last two to get in. So because I was the number one candidate at the time, you know, I thought, okay, God, you're trying to tell me this isn't for me. So then I moved on. Well, fast forward when I moved to Virginia, 
Um, I'm a racquetballer. I love to play racquetball. So um, I met a gentleman who said, you look like a firefighter. And I said, it's funny you mentioned that. And, wow. and I told him the story about, you know, Cleveland. And he said, well, to be honest, I think you should try again. And I said, ah, I think God was telling me that's not for me. He said, no, I really think you should try again. And he said, Prince William County is, they're hiring. You know, I really think you should go out there. So I did. And and the process just went. So um, I went in in 05. I was class of 051. And I ended up being one of three black females in the entire department. Uh, and at that time, it was, I think, 47 years. Um, but I ended up being the only black female engine officer because wow. the other two were medics. They were officers, but they were medics. So when for all those people out there that, you know, are, are familiar with the fire department, when you ride the truck or when you ride an engine, being an officer is completely different from riding a medic. So um, it, it was very, very difficult from the time that I promoted um it was one challenge after another, one stressful situation after another. Uh, and. Uh, there were a lot of us uh, blacks in the fire service, you know, that felt undervalued, you know, that that were having difficult times. Um, but once I promoted and all this stress started, I then became sick. I became chronically sick. Uh, I broke out with sores all over my body, inside my mouth, on the bottoms of my feet. Um, I ended up... I, migraines back my low back was all messed up and it was just one thing after another wow. so it took me four years to figure out that it was the job that was making me six sick mm. it, took, it took me an additional two years to actually to quit it but I had a gentleman one time um tell me you know Lockett that you're not as bad as they say and I said he was an oh, Irish boy white, white Irish guy. And, and I said, well, what do they say? He said that you're the gay black bitch of the department. And I, what? I just, Whoa. you know, that, that hit my spirit so hard. I was just crushed because, you know, I've always been a person that has always been, you know, about loving and, and, you know, all about shining God's light. And, I, I had no idea that this was the idea of me, you know, to other people. So um, shortly after that, that's when I left the department. Um, I had a two and a half hour exit interview where I told him about the sexism, the racism, all the isms, uh, you know, the discrimination and that. Uh, he said, well, I think you should file, you know, a grievance and blah, blah, blah. I said, well, I'm here to tell you I've seen how those go mm -hmm. and I don't need to file a grievance to have someone come back and say that what I've said and what I know to be true can't be substantiated. I said, yeah. so I'll just I'll leave this here and, and I'll move on. Uh, so yeah. that's that's where that's when I left the fire department. Yeah. I mean, I'm so sorry that that happened to you, but that's also one of the reasons why I became a lawyer because I just, injustice anywhere just never felt great to me, good to me at all. Um, but employment law is the area of practice in my business where I have the ability to promote my client's civil 
civil rights. Um, a lot of people present to my office in the employment context for some type of discrimination, right? Or some type of wrongful discharge based on discrimination. And it's one of the things that I always say, and a lot of people are uneducated to this fact, if you're not taking proper notes on something happening and articulating exactly what it is, it's so hard to substantiate it later to say that this is a claim for actual discrimination or this supports that. You know, and I just literally had this conversation with another podcaster last week talking about the stereotypes that have been placed on African-Americans in this country. And I know what racism feels like. You know, I know what it feels like to be biased against. And sometimes it is you can't articulate that. You know, it's just a matter of fact in the in the room. We can we can see it, but sometimes you can't even put it into word. But when someone makes a statement like that, that is that's the the smoking gun, for instance, to say, you know what? I told y'all I told y'all that this employment uh, environment or whatever was so fraught with bias and discrimination that it's causing people to literally be consumed with sickness. So I am so sorry that happened. To you, but this is that's one of the reasons why I fight as hard as I do for my clients, because I something has to change for sure. And that should not have happened to you. Honestly, I think that's why um, the, I coach the way I coach because I've had such difficulty since I was young, you know, with, um, you know, other coaches not coaching me properly or not giving me any attention or or any of those things. And then you get older and then you have a, a situation like the fire department happen. And, you know, my father coached uh, football at the College of Worcester for 35 plus years. And, you know, I knew toughness from him. So I just knew to tough it out. Well, not everybody's got a football coach and daddy, you know, to help, you know, get them through toughing things out. And, and if you don't teach these young children how to have mental fortitude and how to persevere in a hate filled environment, then they just get consumed with grief and then they just kind of fall off, you know, and, and it's, it's imperative that, you know, we as coaches give them that, but I, I love, I've loved basketball. I've always loved basketball, but it's, I've, and I, my, I always say basketball is life, but these, these kids get to learn about life and, and how to navigate it in a fun way through the game of basketball or in, in whatever sport they choose to do. But what are the way can you use fun activities Mm -hmm. to to grow someone up, a young child up, uh, you know, in a way that will give them a strong foundation that will last till they have their children. Right. Hence legacy, you know, and and that's, that's what it's all about. Man. I love, I love how you put that. And this mental fortitude is so critical to your survival as a person, period. Because if if you personally are not intact, everything around you would be in tatters, you know? Um, one of the things I can say is looking back on my younger days and athletics and the coaches that I've had, like I still communicate with my high school and college track coach. 
they were and are fathers to me. And they are people who have always set examples that when I look back, I can say, you know what? I was tripping, <laughs> but they gave me the guidance I needed to you know, grow and, and understand and reflect on whatever it is that needed to change just in my own personal life, whether they thought they did or not. But that's the difference in the coach. But I definitely want to address something that you shared with me before um, about having mental fortitude, because as a coach and definitely a, a steward of young people, children who we have the power to shape how they view and experience the world, um, you yourself was a child at one point. And you, like you said, you've always loved playing basketball and you were trying out, wanting to go pro. And that was that was um, that's all you basically wanted. Right. And so part of what I try and, and teach people is about this, the subject of this podcast, what are you sporting about? It has to be more than sports. And so what was your moment where you realized that it was more than sports, that you had to be sporting about something more than basketball? It, it actually took a very long time. Uh, basketball, it, it's funny, you know, that movie, Love and Basketball. Um, I, I was very much like that. Basketball was everything for me. Um, and when it was over, I was kind of lost in what is it or who is Tiffany really exactly? Uh, and it, it took me a lot of years uh, to figure that out. Um, but I always knew I was going to coach. When I was 10 years old, my father, you know, the old projectors that you have the reels that you have to you put the, the film in and reel it around in order to, you know, get the view, the film. I was breaking down film in my dad's bedroom on his white wall with at 10 years old with, you know, those old uh, film reels. So I always knew I was going to coach. I always had a coach's mind. I always had an analytical mind. I always had a mind that was thinking about how to make things better, how to be more efficient. Um, and so once I kind of floundered after college for a while. And, you know, I was a lifeguard. I was a water safety instructor. Then I was a rec instructor, um, ran that uh, city softball program for the girls for uh, the city of Cleveland. I did all these things. And after the fire department, once I moved to Virginia and then after the whole um, fire department thing happened, I was like, I'm going to coach, period. It was just so really for me, you know, that could literally be I graduated with about 22, about 10 years, 10 plus years for me to say, OK, this this is what I love. This is who I am. This is what I do. And, mm -hmm. you know, initially it was it was difficult. I took it very personal. You know, I was very fervent and, you know, I was yelling and screaming. You know, I did what I saw. You know, I coached on emotion. Yeah. Um, but after having a couple of different jobs, um, I, I realized that there's more to this. And just a quick story. There's a, a, a young lady. Her name was Molly Maglich. And she had a sister named Kate. And I coached Kate um, the year before uh, I was the JV head coach. And me and Kate didn't necessarily get along. We had six girls that knew how to play and six girls that didn't. So my mm -hmm. job was to bring them all together. So the six ones that knew how to play really didn't care about the other six. So we had a lot of turmoil that year. But 
uh, Kate was telling her mom about some of the things that were happening. So me and her mom didn't necessarily get along. But that following year, I had her sister, Molly. Mm. And I remember we were in practice one day and I'm, I'm yelling and doing my deal. And um, that following day, Molly came into the gym. And she said, Coach Lockett, can I talk to you in your office? I said, absolutely. She had a stack of note cards. She sat down on the couch because I used to have one on one sessions with the girls and they'd come in and lay on the couch, literally like a psychologist. She said, OK, coach. I just have to tell you, I didn't like the way you yelled at me and I don't respond to that. So she just went on and I said, okay, Molly, let me stop you there. Mm -hmm. I said, now me yelling isn't me attacking you. Mm -hmm. I said, one, sometimes I have to yell so I can be heard. My, My voice is a little high pitched, you know, so sometimes they don't necessarily hear, but more than that, you know, you're running, you're, you know, you're breathing heavy and, right. you know, coach can say something and you just literally don't hear. I said, but also it's my job to get, to bring you all together. I said, so I don't want you to think that I'm attacking you. I want you to hear what I'm trying to tell you mm-hmm. rather than the way I'm saying it. And mm-hmm. so after I finished saying what I said, I think she asked one or two more questions and she was finished. She said, well, you answered everything right there. (laughs) And so I said, I said, okay. I said, but moving forward, Molly, I absolutely will coach you differently. And I appreciated you letting me know. Well, I did. Molly became my biggest advocate. That conversation that day allowed me to get more information about the rest of the girls and about how they're all doing and and reacting than I ever would have got. Because from that point on, now when I had one-on-one conferences, Molly would come in and lay on the couch and she would literally just start naming the girls and run off everything that's going on with them and what's happening. And and I was just like, wow. But not only that, her mother also then became my biggest advocate. So at that time, I had went from, um, when I first started at South County, I went from a uh, varsity assistant, Mm -hmm. a junior JV head coach, to that following year being a freshman coach, which is how I ended up getting Molly. And because, like I said, her mother became my biggest advocate that following year, I became the head coach. Molly's mother was telling all the parents, you got to fill out your surveys. You got to tell, tell them all about coach Lockett, tell them this. And, and one of the things that came up um, when the, at that time, the current head coach had left, um, she said, well, all of your parents handed in these surveys Mm-hmm. And I was like, they sure did. I mean, I remember them all, you know, talking about it. And it, it was such a beautiful thing because the girls at, at our little end of the year banquet, they were all hugging each other and crying and they didn't want it to end. And it was just a beautiful thing. And that taught me that basketball is nothing, mm-hmm. that these relationships and, and these these moments where these girls are connecting is what it's all about. Yeah. And that's that's when I really started to get it. Um, then, like I said, I became the the head coach that following year and every every team in the program that following year was successful, you know, and because 
it was all about loving and and just playing, just Mm -hmm. playing. And the beauty of it too, though, is that you were open to listen to a child, which I think a lot of adults quickly will shut out children for being, you need to stay in a child's place, you know, because you're not the adult, you don't make the decisions. Um, But we can learn so much from children because children truly do speak their truth. You know, they speak their facts and they're coming from a good place. Um, and so that that story actually is a good lesson for anyone who struggles with taking some cues from kids, um, because we can learn so much from different people, regardless of what their age is. But I want to ask you something that I think will definitely impact uh, our listeners, especially if they are struggling with this. Um, you identify as a gay black woman. And at some point, you didn't even realize that you were struggling with that. Can you share a little bit of that story with us? Uh, well, I um, I remember the only time I ever remember that being mentioned in my house was um, when my father said, when you leave for college, th- there'll be girls on your team that'll try to do things. And I literally, and it took me, I think, probably five plus minutes. We literally went back and forth. What things? Things. Well, what, you know, because I literally didn't know um, until I finally got what he was talking about. Well, I, I um, ended up going to college um, and I, I ended up my um, roommate at the time, she was seeing a girl and she was very hesitant to tell me. So that summer when I went home, she told me all about who she was seeing at that point. And I said, okay. And she was like, so we can still be friends. And I was like, yeah, you know, no big deal. So um, then we started hanging out more. I met some of her friends and everything. Well, fast forward. And I ended up meeting um, a woman named Delise, who was just, she was, she became an awesome friend. Um, I was having a lot of difficulty at the school. Um, because, you know, me and my coach weren't getting along and things like that. And uh, she was just that friend that, you know, I could talk to. And then I ended up falling in love with her, which was the crazy thing. It literally happened in an instant, um, which scared me um, because that had been something that had never happened to me. Um, You know, I've always been a person that just wanted to love and be loved. You know, I I had a million and one boyfriends and I used to always tell my parents about them. Um, But when when this happened, I noticed I was coming home and all the stories I was saying, they just kind of disappeared. So I kind of started getting, you know, asked, you know, who are you hanging out with? What are you doing? Um, So from that point, I started hiding. Um, And because I still didn't know what that meant, I still didn't know what that was about. Um, and so fast forward, um, like I said, I was trying to play pro ball. I was trying to go overseas. Uh, I'm working at a place called positive education program, uh, PEP in in Cleveland, whammo, my back goes out. I can't Mm -hmm. walk. So I finally get to, um, school one day and there was a lady named Melanie Dunham. And, uh, I was telling her, you know, all about my back at the time she was seeing, uh, it was a manager for the Cleveland Indians, you know, and she was a sports person too. Um, so we always talk sports. 
And um, she said, well, I know someone that'll see you. I said, well, I don't, I don't have any money. She said, it's okay. I'll, they'll do me a favor. So I went to see this lady and um, she sat me on the table and she's like, hmm. She kind of analyzed me a little bit. She said, I think I know who you need to go see. There's this Dr. Keith Jordan who's starting this practice in uh, Lakewood, Ohio. Um, and I think you should go see him. So I say, okay but I don't have a lot of money. She says, you know, he's not that expensive. You know, he'll work with you. So um, he was a chiropractor at the time. He was just a chiropractor. So um, I go to see him. And meanwhile, all these things are happening in the background in my life. Um, I go to see him and we talk a little bit. And so he sits me on the table and he says, lay down. And I lay down and he says, okay, let's get this out of the way right now. You're already in heaven. Whammo, I lost it. I lost it. Because in that moment, all those things that were happening in the background just came rushing in. Because really what I did fear was that I was wrong. I was going to hell. Just like, you know, Bible thumpers tell you, oh, it's, you know, this and that. Um, and. It, it just, it just kind of opened this floodgate of, okay, now I can, now I can just kind of let go and, and let God, because I have been holding so tight to this. Yeah. I've been trying to keep such a rein on it that it literally took my back out and I couldn't walk. I just yeah. flat out couldn't walk. So um, I've been working with him for about 27 years. <laughs> Um, he's, his practices is changed and grown in multiple ways. Um, he's got a book, the practice, uh, which is like my Bible, um, because it talks about how to navigate life. But it was, it was in that moment with Keith and it's, it's been in all those moments with Keith that I've come to realize that nothing matters, but that connection to God. You know, he brings us into this world perfect. That's why children know what to say. Mm -hmm. it, that's why they know, because they come mm -hmm. into this world perfect. perfect. And, you know, life happens to us so hard that we become bitter and hardened. And we yep. just don't we just don't see how to get back to what children see, mm -hmm. you know, opening up, caring, being empathetic, you know, laughing. You know, I, I had a job where there were times I walked in the building and someone would at, say, what are you smiling about? And I was like, wow, whoa. you know, yeah. and I, I would be smiling because they didn't know. I was so glad to have a job that had benefits and was full time <laughs> that, that I came in smiling. Because that was a big deal to me. I hadn't had a full-time job. I hadn't had benefits. So that was stability to me. You know, and, and we walk around all day, every day, and we see people. And, and you know, we see that outer part. You know, oh, she looks hateful. Yeah. Or she looks like this. Or, or he's that or whatever. But we don't know what they're going through. You know, yeah. it's, it's interesting I, I just had an exchange with a lady on Facebook. She was in the department when I was there. Mm -hmm. um, and she had asked me a question, something about what happened then. And I said, you know, 
people were so judgmental and so hard on me. I said, but my father died unexpectedly in 08. Just literally, I I came back from a trip from Texas um, and my bags were packed, still packed. The phone rang and I saw it was my sister and I thought, oh, I'll give her a call because I was tired. It rang again. And I was like, hmm. Mm -hmm. By the time the phone rang again, it rang um, on my now wife's phone Mm -hmm. and she picked up the phone and I saw that it was my sister, Robin. And she said, she was just crying. She was like, it's daddy. And I was like, oh my God, what happened? She said, he's gone. He's gone. I literally called my oldest sister who we live seven minutes away. Mm -hmm. I could hear my nephews in the background wailing, wailing. It was just a heartbreaking experience. So I drove there, I picked up my little sister and we literally drove to Ohio that night. Mm-hmm. And that's how I lost my father. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm having now to go to work with people who are hating me for whatever reason, I don't know, um, because I shouldn't have promoted when I did or whatever. Mm-hmm. They, they have no idea that I'm dealing with the worst grief in my life. Yeah. And that I'm that I'm just trying to get up and look presentable every day. Yeah. You know, and so we don't we don't see that in people. And and I think it's so important for us, especially as coaches, to see that in kids. They come in there. Basketball doesn't mean a thing if they don't have a parent that supports them, yep. if they haven't eaten a meal because they yep. don't have food, if they're homeless, if they don't understand how to navigate relationships, yep. if they're dealing with things like I dealt with their sexuality, you mm-hmm. know, if they're dealing with mental health, basketball means nothing. Yeah. So we have to first understand that we have to treat that kid that Mm -hmm. child as a person that matters, that's loved. Because once they know that they're loved and they're supported, then they can be who they are. Then they can get on a court and they can play some of the best basketball you've ever seen. And then they'll leave that court. And then they have an impact on their friends that you never knew. Going back to Molly Maglich, she was the leader amongst all her friends. But one of the thing that, things that Molly always did was anything that I, ne- I ever needed advocated or that I said that might not have come across well with the other girls, mm-hmm. Molly knew just how to stop, how to step in and let them know what Coach Lockett really meant. And that's what it's all about. That's how you touch a life. That's how you leave a legacy. And, and that's what, what really matters. No, that's that's really good. I mean, it's the sad part is that regardless of how you identify in terms of your sexuality, we grow up and we harbor so many different things that we, we tend to forget how good we really are. I have an aunt that I call like my aunt slash sister because we're so close in age. And she always tell me, she said, you don't know how golden you are. She's like, girl, you are so golden. And it has literally taken me affirming that to myself every day to say, you, I'm good. Like I just did a podcast, um, I think it was last week or so, saying like, we have to remember to thank our inner child because so many people 
want to fix our inner child and we feel like we need to fix our inner child. And then we get fixated on always fixing our inner child or finding something that's wrong with our inner child. And we forget how good we actually are. We forget how much impact we've made into this world that we've made on other people and all the good that we still have yet to accomplish. Um, But when we find our way through the pain, the beauty of it is, is that although we have suffered at, to some extent, our pain will still help others, but we still have to be uh, uh, brave enough and courageous enough to say exactly what hurt us or how we discovered that pain to be and how painful it actually really is and was for us so that other people can find the courage and the willingness to move forward in their pain as well or through their pain. Um, so I, I just thank you for sharing that so much because I, I know it's going to help a lot of people. Um, so I know we got to wrap up really quick, but I, I definitely want you to give us some some words of encouragement for anyone who is trying to overcome stereotypes, rejection, um, trying to find themselves in some way or another. What what tips or advice would you have for them to come to a realization that they are actually enough? Well, first and foremost, foremost, you've got to have a God foundation, not a religious foundation, a God foundation. Our relationship with the Lord right here, our connection with him is personal. It is personal and it's directly for us. It's not the same. So you need to establish that for yourself. How do you do that? How did I go about doing that? I read. I read as much as I could. Um, I It just wasn't about the Bible. And people need to understand that the Bible is a guide, yes, but the Bible was also written by man. And it was written by the person who could influence the most, the most wealthiest person. Um, So it is a book. It is not it is not the 100 percent truth of what your relationship will be and is with the Lord. And once you establish that relationship, it gives you a sense of comfort. Then when you're crying at night or, or when you're feeling like you have no support or when you feel like you're just up in the air floating, you can you can start talking to the Lord. You can start praying. You can start saying, "Okay, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to be what I'm supposed to be or I don't know what I'm supposed to be. But Lord, you take it, you know, And, and when you can surrender, then that's when you can then begin to feel some peace because really the the emotion and and the struggle that's deep within us is our ego it's it's that deep-seated ego that says you should be this you should have this so and so shouldn't treat you like this or say this to you and you know and on and on and on we could go on and on but regardless of that put that ego aside that that's like it's kind of like the devil on your shoulder. It's not on your shoulder. It's it's deep yeah. down. Mm-hmm. It's deep down in your brain, and it tells you that you're not enough, and that you're not yeah. good enough, and that there are better pe- other people that are better. It tells you all those negative things. But really, when you establish that true foundation, that personal relationship with God, He will give you a strength that you never even knew you had. He will show you who you are in a way you never even thought 
that you could see. He will put things in your path that you never thought you'd be doing. And he will give you a perfect piece that will just baffle you some days. And it's a lot of work. Don't get me wrong. But once that work is put in, it you can't even quantify it. It's worth more than all the money in the world because yeah. it gives you not only that that peace of mind, of spirit, and that rest, but freedom. Yeah. Freedom. You feel free to be everything that you ever wanted to be. You feel free to do everything that you ever wanted to do. And nobody's going to stop you. It gives you a fearlessness. The one, the one thing that, that brought me to be able to tell my parents about my sexuality was one day God told me, even if they don't love you, I do. I'm here for you because I was afraid that my family wouldn't love me anymore. And when I heard those words, that gave me a strength and a courage that I could say, okay, God, and I could go out there and I could now start to live my truth because now I could be truthful. Yep. That's what I would say. And truthful to yourself. Absolutely. Because that's where it starts. Everything that we are is out of ourselves. how we treat people, how we Mm -hmm. act, how we react. You know, what we do is based on how we feel about ourselves, how we view ourselves deep down inside. So if you have a good relationship with the Lord, if you love yourself, if you take care of yourself, then you're going to treat people that way. And they're going to see that light. You'll walk in a room and they'll just you'll brighten the room. Mm -hmm. You just will, because that light comes from within. And it's something that nobody can stop. Yep. Yep. You can't stop it because you already have the power. The power everything that you want to do or need to do, it's already in you. It's already in you. Um you just you just you just have to allow your mind to have enough freedom to be able to see what it is that the Lord already sees for you. You know, we perceive things, we see things, and we put a perception on it. And it becomes the gospel for us because that's what it is. I mean, I see it, but in actuality, it's, it's what's not seen. It's all the stuff that's behind that, that that's real. Because a lot of times when you see something, that's not the realness. It's what's behind that. And you just have to change your perception. And once that perception changes, then you can see, like I said, what the Lord sees for you. Yep. Thank you so much for that. I can definitely attest to that. Um, I I will say, and I told Coach Lockett, <laughs> and I'm a cursing Christian. <laughs> God knows my heart. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh my gosh. But I can definitely attest to, and I can't even really even say I'm a Christian because, I mean, I grew up as a Christian, but the older I became and the more freedom I found in my own thinking my mental ability and this building a spiritual relationship with Christ, it was more than having a label on what it was, you know, having to always fit into this religious box of what a Christian is supposed to look like, what a Catholic is supposed to look like, what a Baptist is supposed to look like. Um, So I can definitely attest to when you build that spiritual foundation, it does provide a level of freedom and fearlessness where you can find the courage to now step from behind the curtain um, from all the things that that you've been telling yourself you couldn't do 
now you can do it because you know you have the power to do that. Always had, but just had to find that that uh, momentum to really get going. So thank you again for coming on the show. This has been so thank awesome. You. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yes, yes, yes. I cannot wait to uh, connect with you again. But thank you so much. And guys, look, if you want to have some of these conversations, read some of these conversations, make sure that you first get the book, What He's Sporting About. Go to all the podcast channels and make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Again, it was a pleasure having Coach Tiffany Lockett on the mic today, and um, we will be connecting soon. Yes, thank you. Ciao, everybody. Thanks for joining us this week on What Are You Sporting About? podcast. Make sure to visit our website, prosportlawyer.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite platform is so you'll never miss a show. And while you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or iHeartRadio. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like the show, you might want to check out our book, What Are You Sporting About? Attorney Savania DeBarros is available for private consulting at S ldebarros.com. And remember, we're here to educate, support, and guide you in your journey to success because we're all sporting about something.